Welcome to the 8th episode of Functional Geekery. I am your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Jessica Kerr. Jessica, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Good morning. Something about me. All right, so I went to college. I studied physics because it was the only thing that sounded hard. So I did four years, got my bachelor's in that, and then I was lucky enough in the meantime to have an aunt who had a friend who worked at FedEx and Operations Research who got me a programming gig in the summers. And I learned that programming is really awesome, partly because it's easy, there's great demand for it, and it's, it's fun. It's, it's problem solving, right? It's a whole bunch of puzzles. And then the great part is you get paid, and at 5 o'clock you can go home and not think about work at all, which was totally different from school. So I decided to leave academia and not continue with physics and get a real job doing programming. Because at the time, I loved the 8 to 5 part. Of course, now I'm, I'm speaking, I'm writing and blogging, and I'm like all passionate about the career. So I take my work home with me all the time. But at least that's my choice. And I feel like I really lucked out to get into this career 15 years ago when I graduated college. I wouldn't have known about it if not for those internships. But I'm, I'm really grateful for that opportunity, and I'm thrilled to be in computer science right now because I think we're learning so much in software, and our field is growing, and it's dynamic and changing. And, and then we introduce our business processes, and we're changing the whole way business works, and it's really fascinating. I've caught a couple of your presentations. One was an ORDEV presentation, where it was like functional programming for the object-oriented developer. And you gave another presentation similar to that at Ruby Midwest. Right, right. Functional principles. Okay. Uh, I have, I have a, an objective in that talk, and one of my missions in life lately is to bring just enough of the ideas from functional programming back to Java and C Sharp. You don't have to do functional programming to benefit from understanding functional programming, even if you're actually writing OO. Yeah, I saw you kind of, you were so excited in the Ruby Midwest conference that you were almost jumping around, getting everybody, trying to get everybody enthused. Almost. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, leaping off the stage, I believe. But I am really excited about this. It's, It's so much fun, and I love using my brain. Yeah, your excitement was, seemed so infectious. I wanted to get you on and talk about it and get another person's perspective from someone who's having to cross both worlds because I know that's really where most people are nowadays I believe I think they're having to from my perspective it seems like they're enjoying getting into functional programming but they're working in object-oriented land in their day job most of the time because they're not able to make the jump to their toy projects that they're working on and they're trying to still understand the concepts right but I thought your presentation was Fantastic, and you because you were talking about with Ruby, it's not so much try and take some of the immutability as far as the functional principles, but here's the other functional principles you can do that are pretty easy to introduce. Essentially, things like value objects and treating data as data structures, or even your objects kind of as data structures. Where if you don't need it, make everything class level or essentially static in Java or C. It seemed like oh right, where yes. That way, the function lives there, it belongs to the object, but it's not necessarily tied to every other part of the state of the object, right? Right. I like to use static or class-level methods because they receive everything that they need as parameters instead of using the invisible parameter of this and unspecified fields on it. One of the benefits of functions over traditional methods is that they're specific about what they take in. That's good documentation. It makes the code more readable. And even though you have access to class fields, you don't have to use them. In general, I think we can apply a lot of the principles of functional programming just by choice without the languages enforcing them. Like in Ruby, you don't have to use mutable state even though you have it. Use it only when it makes the code more clear and use it in very localized spots, like within one function. And it's the same with methods. Just because we have objects and we can put methods on them doesn't mean that's the clearest way to write the code all the time. 
that was one of the things coming into Ruby more full-time after getting some exposure to functional programming. It kind of split was, and it's something I wish more languages kind of had a concept of, was the Bang operator. Ruby doesn't seem to take oh. advantage of it to as much effect as it probably should. Wait, the Bang operator? Uh, Sorry, the, or- ba- the Bang at the end of the method name. The suffix, right. In Ruby, there's an exclamation point at the end of methods that are going to mutate the object that they're called on. And that's a great warning. It's, uh, yeah, I like that convention a lot. Yeah, the sad thing is it's not necessarily the same. It's almost a subset of things that's specific, whereas most objects should probably have the bang and don't. And so your talk made me kind of think about if you're going to do this and you have things like Ruby with the suffix of the bang that says, hey, this is modifiable, maybe most of your methods should start being modifiable until you start weaning off that mutable state that generally happens in OO. That's true. A good place to start if you have uh, methods that mutate the state of an object is to designate them somehow. I don't think you can use bang in Java. The compiler won't like that, but we could... And then with a capital letter or some nonsense, uh, once you start measuring that, once you start marking it and noticing how often you do that in your code, then you can start optimizing. You raise your awareness of what you're doing, and then you can start using your own discipline and choosing to reduce the amount of mutation you use. Measuring is the first step in optimization, right? And that's the way to do that. Plus, it makes it really obvious that, oh, wait, nope, this is actually... Yeah, I'm trying to be safe. I'm trying to take advantage of referential transparency, being that this method doesn't matter if it's called once or substituted in for the value because it's no side effects. That doesn't do anything. But it makes it clear that, yeah, this method's not necessarily referentially transparent. It does something under the covers. It communicates to a database. It, It talks to something else, which I know you've covered in your talks as well, where you talk about isolating everything to a center core that you can. Right, right. One of my new themes is we like encapsulation, right? We like classes that keep their data to themselves. And the reverse applies too. And the reverse, the dual of encapsulation, I think, is isolation. So if encapsulation means you can't see my insides, then isolation means I can't see outside myself. A referentially transparent function, or a pure function, as some people say, can't see the world outside of it. Given a set of parameters, it always produces the same output, no matter what else is going on in the world. And that means that function is isolated from the world around it. And that makes it way more predictable, way more testable. Those are friendly functions. And the great thing is, you don't have to use a functional language to write that kind of code. We can use our discipline and choose not to access the world. And I love the idea of when you do access the world, mark it, make it obvious. Make that method name ugly because that's an ugly method. So how do you kind of help coordinate your teammates when you start working with teams who are unfamiliar and you're bringing these ideas in? What are some of your recommendations as to how you help people see the light in this case of saying, here's where this is. Otherwise, if you're doing this and you have someone else coming in and following your methods and starting to pollute it with outside references, right, that aren't necessarily passed in. Oh, yeah. I've been lucky so far. My first job where I get to really do serious functional programming is this one. I'm working at Monsanto in biotechnology. And we have a team of Scala developers that I've learned a ton from. I came in a year and a half ago as a budding functional programmer. And now I'm the one enforcing referential transparency. And no, don't pass that repository into every single method. Keep the database to yourself, please. So I've so far, I've been the one doing the learning mostly. At least I feel that way. On the other hand, in a previous job, I did try to bring the Guava library into more of our Java code. So Guava provides a little bit of like level one functional programming. Basically, you get map and filter over lazy iterables. And it 
takes away those for loops, those highly repetitive for loops that are just basically maps and filters, which is one of my pet peeves about Java. So it provides just a little bit of very targeted, cleaner code, more declarative code. And there was some resistance to that among Java developers. And I think that the key point is that I'm aiming for readable code. And that is not the same thing as familiar code. And people were like, well, I know what that for loop does. I know it immediately. This other thing, this, this iterables dot filter, I have to think about that. But they were just aiming for what was familiar to them. And if you stick with what's familiar, because it's the fastest for you to work with right now, then you're not gaining, you're not learning, and you're not improving your code. So eventually, once we had some lunch and learns, and I started using it, and then code review is a great way to spread practices back and forth, even though I'm not going to make them use Map and Filter immediately, they're going to see it in my code. And once they see it enough times, then it becomes familiar enough that the for loop doesn't have that temporary advantage. And finally, people come around, some of them very quickly, some of them it takes years, but they come around and find that at least for collections processing, the functional style is more readable. And here, by readable as opposed to familiar, I mean someone completely unfamiliar with the code can come in and read the business logic, read the intent of the code without having to play compiler in their head, without having to step through what the computer's going to do to figure out what the output of a particular function or expression is going to be. So you said you're doing some Scala now. How much of that is... Because I know Scala kind of walks the line between functional and object-oriented programming, from my understanding. Ooh. So it's one of those, it's kind of the hybrid languages. How much have you found walking the line between each side? Great point. Great question. So I've been doing Monsanto professionally for a year and a half. And Scala is a hybrid language. It's actually more object-oriented than Java. And one of its objective is to be an easy transition from Java. That's both a selling point and a curse. Because when you first start writing Scala, you can literally cut and paste Java into a .scala file and IntelliJ will do the conversion for you. It can be that mechanical. So the positive is you can write Java in Scala and you can feel like you know something, but the negative is you're wrong, you don't know something. Scala won't force you to learn to write your code any better, but it does give you the opportunity to use a much more functional style. So on our team, I know before I got there, when the team first started converting this Java and Groovy application over to Scala, their Scala looked a lot like Java. Then they brought in a couple Scala experts and everyone started learning from them and the new practices osmosed into the other members of the team. And now our Scala is much more functional. We still use inheritance. We still use traits as mixins. I really like traits as mixins as composition. It's basically composition implemented with a little bit of inheritance. But we avoid class hierarchies, except where we don't, and then we regret it. And we aim for referential transparency. So our style as people coming from Java developers has metamorphosized slowly into a more and more careful functional style. Scala really does accommodate that. It totally accommodates that gradual shift. But what it doesn't do is force you to use any particular style. Scala is like six languages. There's, there's half a dozen ways to do anything. And that's great when you're writing it, but painful when you read it. One of the things I love about Scala is that it divides the language into things you need to know in order to write Scala and use other people's libraries and things you need to know to write the libraries. So you can learn the language gradually. The negative is it's new enough that all these libraries that we want to use, the documentation isn't 
great in all of them. So you'll wind up having to go to the source code because that is the documentation. And in order to read the code in the libraries, you have to understand all the possible ways type parameters and abstract types. And what the heck is equals colon equals? You can't Google that. It's actually built into the language. So the positive is you can learn it gradually. The negative is when you start jumping in and looking at Scala code, you're going to hit stuff you haven't seen yet. I still hit stuff I haven't seen yet. And I'm like, what the heck is that operator? What does that syntax even mean? And I've been doing this for almost two years. So what are some of the reasons that you might choose for Scala then, just because it is that hybrid language? I was thinking about that the other day of what kind of requirements in a project would drive me to choose Scala in particular over some other language like Erlang or Clojure or even Java. And there are two reasons that I could really come up with. Akka is one. If I was writing a Java project or a Clojure project and I needed the actor model, which is very powerful for asynchronous programming, a lot of things happening at once and you don't know or care what order they happened in, except for very specific messages that go back and forth. Akka is great for this. Akka is not easy, but it's one of the better documented Scala libraries out there, and there are some good books about it. I really like Derek Wyatt's book on Akka. And the actor model itself is a really interesting concept. You said that you run an Erlang user group, so you must be familiar with the actor model. And I think it's brilliant in a lot of ways. Do you want to explain it for some of those people who may not be familiar with the actor model at this point? Great idea. The actor model says that you divide your code up into little bits, and each bit is called an actor. The actor in Erlang runs in its own process with its own memory space, and it can't bother anybody else. The actor is also single-threaded. So within an actor, you don't have to worry about threading or concurrent mutation or anything like that. What an actor does is receive messages. And the output of each message processing is, one, some side effects, which could include sending other messages, and two, the next version of the actor. So in Erlang, as I understand it, values are immutable. You don't mutate state except that you mutate the actor itself and provide the next version of the actor that will receive the next message. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's pretty close. A lot of the cases, it's the way you think about it is essentially it's just the function. And so the functions are kind of the actors. And the way you do it is you receive your message. And then when you receive that message, you pass back in your new state to the next message. So essentially, it's like a tail recursive call where you call your function again. It's like iterates then in that way, where the actor is a function and with each call to the function, it returns the next function. Yeah, you can call other functions or keep going on. But when you send a message to, you essentially send a message to a function and it can either stay in the same function, call outside or whatever, and then it'll send on the next function and continue. So you usually use like a, it's usually done like a receive loop, but instead of looping, you receive. And then when you are done, you call the next thing with your new state. So it's a loop that can change itself, but it changes itself at specific boundary points between the message receives. Yeah. And it's not really looping. It's just a function that calls itself to handle the looping. Okay. That makes it sound so much harder than it actually is. So now that we've scared everyone about the actor model, I'll tell you that in Akka, you can technically do that thing where you like provide the next version of the actor, the iterative sort of modification. But we almost never do because we found that it's much more clear in Scala just to stick a couple vars in there. So one place that I do use mutable state is within actors. It's safer there because they're single-threaded. So each actor will receive one message at a time. The order of the message is not specified. Different actors can proceed in different orders. But your actor is always running in exactly one thread. That means it's safe to stick some VARs in there. 
And we found, for instance, that if our actor is counting things, that's a great place for a variable. And the code winds up a lot cleaner and clearer than when I try to write it in the fully functional style. In ACA, the syntax is context.become, and then you provide the new version of the receive method. So all of this stuff about actors modifying themselves and providing new versions of a function for the next receive is completely optional in ACA. And I like that about it, that it really uses Scala's hybrid nature. It uses the availability of mutable state to make the actor model much more clear. The other thing about the actor model is people think, oh, this is functional programming. No, the actor model is like the epitome of object-oriented. It's what object-oriented was intended to be back in the day when the original OO design principle was tell, don't ask. That's exactly what you do with actors. You tell them stuff. You rarely ask. Asking is dangerous. Asking postpones processing. So you tell an actor what to do, just like you were originally supposed to tell objects what to do. That principle is not followed nearly as much in OO programming today, where people think OO is about polymorphism and inheritance. No, those are tools. So it turns out that the actor model is object-oriented programming to an extreme with actors instead of objects. Keep those actors really simple, give them a single responsibility, and you have the original mission of object-oriented programming. Yeah, and I probably made it sound a little more complicated, stumbling over some words there. But it's really just the functions are the actors. You can send, you start a new, and it's really a new process. It's a very lightweight process. And you send a message to a process in Erlang. And that is the actor. And then you just have essentially a function on that process, which acts as your main function that just calls itself again and it just keeps calling itself again over and over again one of the beauties of erlang is how lightweight those processes are it says processes are free and when you create everything in a process for instance take a cache an element in the cache can be a process and then it can expire itself or be expired by a message received externally We're not used to thinking about processes in that way because in Java, processes are very heavy. There's a lot of overhead. Even a thread has way too much overhead. We can't just go creating millions of them. But in Erlang, you can. And the other beautiful thing about Erlang processes is they don't share memory with each other. Now, in Akka and Scala, we don't have that. You technically can share state between actors. You're doing it wrong if you ever do that. You technically can pass something mutable as a message and change it in the receiver. That would be disastrous. Never do that. So Scala being on the JVM doesn't provide as much safety as Erlang. But like in Ruby, like in any language that doesn't have immutability built in at its core, we can use our discipline to make up for the language allowing us to do things we shouldn't. With Akka, do you always go in through Scala, or is it... It's written in Scala, so you're able to use it as any other JVM library. So is there a good Java interop story or a closure interop story for Akka if they want to get actor models without delving into Scala from what you found? I know you can use Akka from Java. I've not tried. Okay. So I, yeah, I couldn't tell you how good it is. But you can also write Scala and interop with that in Java. There's one other reason that I think Scala has a really great story that I would use it even on a Java project, and that's testing. So one way to get a new language introduced at work without scaring people too badly is to write tests in it. You don't have to run Scala code in production to run it around your Java code. And Scala has some beautiful test frameworks. Scala test is excellent. It's super well written. It provides a plethora of different syntaxes that you can use, and you can choose between them. Uh, Whichever test framework you're used to, Scala test supports that style. And it's a very well written framework. The code in it is really pretty. 
The other test framework that I love is Scala Check. Scala Check is the property-based testing framework in Scala. And I think it's really well done. There's a book about Scala Checks, Scala Check, the definitive guide that's in preprint at the moment. The final one will be coming out before Scala Days in June. And it's an excellent book about property-based testing. I love it because it doesn't just say, here's the syntax, here's how you do it, but it provides patterns of here's how you might write properties. I love property-based testing because it tells us how we know that our code works. You can have a program and you can say, oh, that works. But how do you know? That's part of science. Science is all about asking, what do we know and how do we know it? And our tests are, how do we know it about whether our code works? Property-based tests specifically address the question of how do we know our code works in all cases? Some people would love to be able to prove that a program is correct. That turns out to be impractical in most cases, but property-based testing is a great compromise between proving, which is impractical, and asserting, oh, I know my code works because I tested it this one time and it did what I wanted. Property-based tests let you specify specifically, here is all the possible input for this function, for instance. And given a set of input, here's the output it should produce. And then ScalaCheck will generate some input within the parameters you specified and run it through the function and check the output against all the properties you specified. And then you'll have some evidence that your code works. And your continuous integration server will run a different 100 test cases every time it runs. Now and then, we've seen this happen, it will hit one that might even represent a bug in the code. Usually it's a bug in the test. But we have seen it find a bug at work. And then I'll pull that particular set of input out, make that into an example-based test case, make that work, and then my code is better. Now, property-based tests include properties as opposed to assertions and they're different they're harder to write it's really hard to say given this input i expect this output without duplicating your code and just writing the same thing again in the test that's not helpful but there are several ways to come up with these properties such that they're meaningful and not too painful and not duplicating code one of my favorites is to generate the output that I want to receive, calculate the input from that, pass that into my function and see if I got what I originally started with. That's an example. And I learned all of this from the ScalaCheck book. Would you say that book's a good resource for just property testing in general and it's not too specific to ScalaCheck or is it kind of more intimate with ScalaCheck and it's not going to be as practical, you think, for people with the other properties-based testing frameworks that are just figure out how to think about property-based testing. It's a short book. It's six or seven chapters. And the introductory chapters and the chapter on designing properties are completely not ScalaCheck dependent. And then there's a couple chapters in there that are specific to ScalaTest, but I'd say a good half of the book. And it's a short book. It's a quick read. Are generic to all property-based testing. So we talked on a couple previous episodes about property-based testing, one with uh, Zach Kesson with Erlang, and then a little one with Reed Draper about Erlang and Haskell and his test check and closure. And they were talking about concept of needing generators versus not, because Erlang and closure are dynamic languages. So because Scala is a little more static, do you have to define your generators for things like that, where you're going to say... Or is it able to take advantage of the static typing in Scala where it says, oh, I know I need a list event so it knows how to generate a list of events versus you having to say, go, when I test this function, right, go generate right. these kind of things. Totally, yes. ScalaCheck is able to take advantage of the type system in Scala and of the compiler's magic hat. I call implicits, the, the magic hat, because it's like you put them in there and then the compiler magically digs them out when it needs them. And yes, if your function takes an int and a string, ScalaCheck can totally give you some generic ints and strings. 
And if it takes an int within certain parameters, you can specify that. So you definitely get all of the above. ScalaCheck provides type classes that provide generators for all the usual built-in types. And then you can also supply your own. So you can create generators for your custom types and put them in the magic hat. And you can create more specific generators that maybe produce an int within certain parameters and explicitly pass those in if you choose. People complain about having to write generators. It feels like a lot of extra work. And it is work, but it's beautiful work because it forces you to think really hard about what is valid input to your function, what kind of input makes sense. And then you document that in your tests when you write your own generators, usually for your custom types, because you're specifying right there what kind of input can this function handle. So I like it because it's more specific than, say, a series of example-based tests. It's more specific about exactly what your code can accept, what's valid. And then your properties are very specific about what can you expect from the output. I've found, in particular, lately, I'm trying to do property-based testing in a test-first style. And this is hard. I find myself spending a couple hours before I start writing any code just thinking about how can I make this test. And it's not that the testing framework is particularly difficult or the tools aren't there. What I'm thinking about is what is the essence of my code and how can I express that? What really is okay to pass in? How can I make that generator as wide and free as possible and still know that my code is going to work? And then how can I express the properties? What kind of output makes sense? What relationships exist between the input and the output? Maybe it's when the first parameter goes up, the output always goes up. Things like that. And when I think really hard about the tests, then my code comes out better. It's like TDD on steroids because it forces you to think about the design at a higher level than a simple example-based test does. If you enjoy the red-green refactor, red-green refactor, red-green, red-green, red-green cycle that's really quick and instant feedback, you are going to hate property-based testing. It is not about instant feedback. It's much more about forcing you to take hammock time and really thinking hard about your code. That's one of the things that seem nice for in general, and the fact that Scala actually has a property-based testing is being able to say, well, it's all one platform. Maybe this part gets better written in a language. And having something like that property-based testing where you don't actually have to go reinvent it in Java, you could take advantage of writing it in Scala or Clojure with Reads version, but say, look, I'm going to try and introduce this. I'm going to introduce some of these testing frameworks. Although I can see we're trying to introduce a, a language by introducing a property testing framework. Shh, don't tell them that. <laughs> Would make it much harder when someone tries to understand what the tests are. If I were writing a Java project, I would totally use Scala for testing. Partly for Scala test, and just Scala's reduction in boilerplate makes testing a lot less painful. Shoot, being able to pass functions instead of creating elaborate factory objects helps. And then for Scala check, it would be excellent to be able to test the Java code with a property-based framework that lets me take full advantage of the type system. Scala is pretty well suited to this particular task. Yeah, it just seemed like your property-based testing was going to be an extra overhead to try and introduce an addition to a new language. Here's a new language that we're going to write our test in, and oh, by the way, you got to completely think about how you define your stuff now. That's a good point. Yeah, but again, Scala offers transitions. You can take your JUnit tests, convert them very easily to Scala test, have the code shrink because it's much smaller, and also be able to refactor the tests, pull out common code. That's a lot easier when you have a functional language. Yeah, absolutely. And then move toward property-based testing. And the other thing about property-based testing is I highly recommend it for your most important code, the stuff that really needs to be right. Don't use it for everything. Examples are easier on your brain. So you also do 
Git training as a side. I do. Have you taken some of your Git training and thinking about that and applied it to trying to apply the functional principles and taking some of those lessons of things like, you know you don't ever change your file on source control, you only create a new version of that file. You can go back to any one of those. And now, working with immutable objects, you can now get a kind of history of those objects. Have you found that coming through and using that metaphor when you start talking about these two different things, or is that something... Totally. Yeah, that's a great point. I have learned a lot from Git in that sense. My repository is a persistent data structure. Some of the concepts within Git are just very widely applicable. Git objects are immutable, and then out of that you can get content addressable storage. And I find it really fascinating, Git's idea that you can condense just the identity of an object into a very small amount of information, the hash. And then when you use that as the location for storage, you get automatic reduction of duplication. You can't, you physically can't store duplicate information. I think that's really cool. Also, the directed acyclic graph concept, which is very core to Git, is one that's easy once you think about it and widely applicable. A lot of things in life, we try to make into a tree. We try to make a taxonomy that has branches that only go out and never cross. But many things in life are more like a directed acyclic graph. The platypus brings together things with fur and things with eggs. Just like we figured out that tagging is a much more useful way to label files than only having a directory structure that can only go in one direction. Everything fits in multiple categories. And the directed acyclic graph and Google's idea of tagging emails are two illustrations of that. Yeah, have you found that, I don't know if any of your training kind of crossed the functionality where if you've kind of took that Git knowledge and said, okay, well, you guys are familiar with source control, right? <laughs> so uh, well, th this is kind of functional programming at an application level where all those things that you were just expanding on are concepts that you come across some functional programming where it's like if you know how source control works you're kind of familiar with some of these concepts anyway about not being able to change the file right, right. you don't actually change the file you create either a diff of data that changed or you have another version of the file yeah, Git and functional programming are definitely compatible. When I teach Git, I like to start with just a few of those underlying concepts, the directed acyclic graph, the hash, content addressable storage, because I think a lot of the Git resources online kind of miss that, and they go straight into what to type. And what to type is not helpful to me if I don't know why I'm typing it. And there are very good reasons in Git for all the things that you type. Not the particular syntax. I have no love for the syntax, although it's very slowly getting better. But if you understand the underlying concepts and look at the commit graph and know what you're doing and why you're doing it, then Git becomes very satisfying. And also, Git can be super frustrating because like Ruby or Java or any language with mutability, it will let you do stuff that you will regret and it will let you get yourself into a bizarre corner of what the heck did I do? And the good news is there's almost always an undo button. But the bad news is that undo button is different for every situation. So you really have to understand what's going on behind the scenes and get in order to know how to undo what you just accidentally did. One of my favorite things at work is when somebody comes to me and says... <laughs> I lost my changes. My repository is all screwed up. Please, can you help me? And then I get to, I get the puzzle and the mystery of what did that person just do? And then you've got the history and you've got the get ref log. So there's clues and I can usually figure it out. And if they ever committed their changes anywhere, then I can get them back. That's kind of what I was kind of getting at was that when people have that issue and you're able to demonstrate, look, here's the magic you get because of all this stuff. Versus how many times have you gotten into dealing with code and objects where like, oh my god, my object's in a completely messed up state. I don't know how I ever got here. Oh yeah, and, totally. And it's then like, you're like, well, 
if we ha if we thought about it with persistent data structures and things like that, we can do exactly what we do with Git, and then essentially walk that structure back and walk the walk right. the history of. It's like back in the day, we hated go to statements because then you had no idea how you got to a particular place in the code. You know how how did my execution get to this point? I don't know because there's go tos everywhere. Mutable state is just like that. How did my memory get in this particular state? I don't know. Anybody could have changed it anywhere. So mutable state is like the modern go-to. And ironically, with functional programming, we're getting back to the point where, how did I get into this code? I have no idea because we're passing the functions around and whatever I pass it to might pass it to somebody else, which might call it lazily six minutes later. And stack traces are useless as soon as you're on a different thread. So we're back to where we don't know how we got to where we are in the code anymore. Not nearly as well as we did in standard Java with those beautiful, beautiful stack traces. Therefore, we really need something to hold still. And that something is our data. That, I believe, is why immutability is essential for functional programming. So one other thing that you're involved with is, I'm sure some of our listeners will have heard of it, the user group Lambda Lounge out in St. Louis. You're you're a member and you give presentations at that. You said giving, and because I, I saw some stuff on your Twitter feed as well, right? Right. I'm speaking at Lambda Lounge on Thursday about Scala Check and property based testing. And Lambda Lounge is the most awesome user group ever. Well, ever in my experience, which is all St. Louis. It's kind of the user group outgrowth of the Strange Loop Conference. They're both started by Alex Miller. Alex is awesome. He's between Strange Loop and our user group Lambda Lounge. He's created a nexus of really great functional thinking programmers in St. Louis. The beautiful thing about Lambda Lounge is it's a two-presentation format, and those two presentations could really be about anything. The theme of the group is functional and dynamic languages, but the first time I showed up, there was a presentation on DNS and how that works. It was awesome. We've had a couple presentations on history of computer science, which is fantastic. So it's really whatever people find fascinating and thrilling at the moment. So we get a great diversity. Thursday, Jim Dewey is coming in from Kansas City to talk about category theory. I'm looking forward to that and my talk on Scholacheck. So it is very functional this week. Lambda Lounge also has some franchises, some copycat user groups. St. Louis is the original, but I know there's one in Manchester. I think there's one in Israel. So feel free to steal the idea and start your own. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, one of the things I heard about it was, the reason it seemed so fascinating was, it's not just a language user group, where it's a concept user group almost. And even, as you said, it spreads out a little bit, but it's like, you have people who are there that do Haskell, that do Erlang, that do F-sharp, that do... Right, ev pretty much like, everybody. Everybody a different language, which means like it seems like a great way to be exposed to all kinds of great and different ideas across the languages. Totally, totally. And it's a great place to talk about the stuff that your side project is in. Because nobody's going to complain if this isn't practical for them to use at work right now, like they would at the Java <laughs> user group. What kinds of things have you seen that kind of spark your interest that you want to, that you've taken back or want to take back to Scala based off the exposure across the different languages? What are some of the things that you wish Scala would bring in? It sounds like Scala has already started to integrate property testing, but is there anything else that you, that you would like to see Scala kind of inherit or be accessible? So... The newer versions of Scala are getting macros, which is helpful because it needs that. Closure has them, and I can see how, how beautiful they are. I've learned some random things like, oh, the other month, John Daly came in and gave a presentation on React. And the fascinating thing that I pulled out of that is that React is a database that doesn't coddle the developers, like the people who are writing software that accesses the database. React is a distributed database, and it doesn't try to hide reality from you in that if two conflicting updates to a document are inserted into React, and that can totally happen because it's distributed, people can talk to different servers, then the next time that document is retrieved, 
the software that is retrieving the document with the conflicts is required to resolve the conflicts and then tell the database what the resolution was. The database doesn't pretend to know about your data. This is your data. You figure it out. And John said that developers, they, they don't like this, right? It forces them to think about stuff that developers don't want to think about. They want the database to just abstract that away. Well, hello, this is the reality of distributing computing. Things happen at the same time that shouldn't happen at the same time. And it's the software's job to deal with that. I really like that idea of acknowledging reality. So that was one of my favorite Lambda Lounge presentations recently. So one other small little topic we can touch on just a little bit because we're getting close, but I'd like to kind of get your perspective was you mentioned Java and C Sharp, and I saw in one of your presentations as well that you kind of had a little touch on of F Sharp. Can you want to kind of give a quick little rundown on that and what you sure. found your experience was? So full disclosure, I haven't used F Sharp in over a year, but it is the language that helped me fall in love with functional programming. F Sharp is Microsoft's functional language, and what I love about it is that it's functional first, it's an ML pretty much, and object-oriented second. Scala's the other way around. In F Sharp, it's fully compatible with the other languages in the Microsoft stack. Therefore, it must support C Sharp interoperability, it must have objects, it must support inheritance, but basically, whenever OO and FP conflict, whenever it gets difficult, Scala says, ooh, let me add another functionality to the type system to support that. And F-sharp says, no, don't do that. So F-sharp doesn't support OO as cleanly or fully as Scala does, but it supports the functional programming better. The code in F-sharp, in my opinion, is a lot cleaner more concise, there's no curly braces. Well, you can use curly braces, but you don't have to. You can use significant white space. And I find F-sharp very beautiful and concise. And I really knew that it was awesome one time when I was, I was in Java still, and I was writing some algorithm that I knew was really complicated. I had to match up all these different pieces and coordinate them in the right order. And I was really struggling to do this in Java just to get it to work at all. I went over to a terminal, and I'm on a Mac, but F-sharp runs on a Mac, and I wrote the thing in F-sharp, and it was, I don't know, maybe 10 lines. It was much easier, much cleaner, and once I did that, I could translate that back into Java. It's, it's possible. I mean, in Java, you can pass functions. Even in Java 6, you just have to wrap them, and Java 8 will be beautiful. But the way of thinking that I was able to express very cleanly in F-sharp still translated back to my OO language. So I recommend, I recommend trying that at some point if you have a hard algorithm, just something complicated that you're trying to implement, and it looks really ugly in your day job language, C, Java, C-sharp, whatever that is. Try writing it. If you're on the if you're a C-sharp developer, please learn F-sharp. It's fantastic. You can script things in it at work, if nothing else, and it will make your life easier. And then you can also use it as a way to express your ideas. And then you'll be able to think more cleanly about the code you're writing in your day job language. Awesome. Yeah, I came from the Microsoft background, so I do. I've heard a lot about F-sharp, never got into it. would take other languages, but I do want to get some F-sharp people on in the future to talk about the ability to still use functional programming in the Microsoft ecosystem. And I've heard the type providers in F-sharp are pretty amazing as well, of being able to determine types of data and get that strongly typed without knowing what it is necessarily. Yeah, F-sharp really illustrates the benefits of static typing and of stronger, more specific typing than you can do in C-sharp. You can see that in F-sharp and get the benefits of it, much like in Haskell. So it looks like we're getting close to the end of our time. I was wondering, is there anything you'd like to plug? Do you have appearances coming on? Any oh, projects you're working on? I have on? a whole list. <laughs> so Thursday, Lambda Lounge, Scala check and property-based testing, but that only helps you if you're in St. Louis. In May, 
KCDC is Kansas City Developer Conference, and I'm doing a full-day Git tutorial and also a couple talks. That's a great conference. It's $100, people. If you're in or near Kansas City and you're not going to this conference, then you should be. Immediately after that, in May, there's Go to Chicago. I'll be doing functional principles there. Then in June, I get to go on tour. My parents are taking the kids, and I'm doing QCon New York. That will be my Scala Streams talk, When Code Reacts to Data. That's a fun one. Go to Amsterdam, functional principles again, and Scala Days. Scala Days is in Berlin this year, and I'll be talking about Scala Z Streams there. Excited about that one. Books. There's the Scala Check book, and also Scala Puzzlers will be out. That's going to be a really interesting one. Those will be out, both be out by Scala Days. I'll give you links to all the talks and things that we discussed today. And just in the spirit of Ruby Rogues, one thing that I found on the internet lately that I just can't put down is ribbonfarm.org. Really interesting ways of thinking about politics, business, programming, and bringing all of that together with a little bit of complexity theory. I, I can't get enough of that site. Sounds great. Well, yeah, we'll definitely include links in the show notes for everything that you've mentioned. Where can people find you online if they want to follow you and stalk you? What's the best way to keep tabs of what you're doing and keep up with you? So my online identity is Jessitron, J-E-S-S-I-T-R-O-N. That's my Twitter ID. It's my Gmail, jessitron.com. I even have it tattooed on my back in a QR code. I'm not kidding. (laughs) All things Jessitron. Okay, we'll make sure to include those as well. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo, and once again, I would like to thank Jessica for giving her time to join me today. Thank you, Proctor. It was a pleasure talking with you. You too. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery. And I timed this so poorly. Oh, what was I thinking with Tuesday morning? Tuesday morning, the cleaners come, and so there's vacuuming. Can you hear the vacuuming?